Welcome to Top Worst Whatever, the podcast where we rank and discuss the top and or worst of whatever it is my guest wants to talk about. I'm your host, Jake, and joining me this week, we have Alexi Sargent to discuss our top five Powered by the Apocalypse role-playing games. Hope you enjoy our conversation. All right, Alexi, thank you for joining me tonight. Why don't you go ahead and give everyone a little introduction to yourself as well as your history with role-playing games in general and then Powered by the Apocalypse games more specifically. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. So I'm Alexi Sargent. I'm a writer, an editor, sometimes a game designer even. You might have seen my work at publications like First Things, uh, the late lamented Weekly Standard, And I've been playing role-playing games for several years now. I kind of got into the hobby in a different way than many people do. I didn't start with Dungeons & Dragons or Pathfinder or any of the most widely known role-playing games. I started by playing Dread, which is a horror game based around a Jenga tower designed by Uh Epidiah Ravichal. And kind of similarly, indie games were all the things I I played at first. my first campaign of a role-playing game was a powered by the apocalypse game of superheroes called masks and i'll explain a little about what powered by the apocalypse means uh powered by the apocalypse or pbta describes a sort of ethos or lineage of games that derive a lot of inspiration from the seminal game apocalypse world designed by vincent and mcgay baker And the Bakers have really given blanket permission to role-playing game designers and just people hacking things together at home to take whatever pieces they like from Apocalypse World and adapt them to their needs, to their settings. And so a whole subgenre of games have arisen based on the central engine of Apocalypse World. And I'd call that engine a story-forward engine, Mm -hmm. where um, the game using a pbta core is always going to be about evoking a particular genre of story and the world kind of comes out of the story rather than the other way around Mm -hmm. Uh, powered by the apocalypse games tend not to emphasize simulating a meticulously uh, predetermined world except in so far as that enhances the story the game's designed to tell and Mm -hmm. some of the central you know, pieces that many Powered by the Apocalypse games share include the use of uh, playbooks for player characters, kind of a really archetype from the genre that you, you know, fill in and determine details of that guides your play and usually includes not only your powers and abilities, but kind of what your story hook is within the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a central dice mechanic of rolling 2d6, perhaps plus or minus a stat, to determine your uh, success at any given task, where there's three tiers of success, including a, uh, a miss, a partial hit, and a full hit. Partial hits allow the GM to introduce some delicious complications, and misses allow the GM you know, narrative control to do something big, which could be a major failure for your character or could be a pyrrhic success that really mm-hmm. you know 
creates new complications for the character. And that the non-binary, the, the sort of three-tiered result system is is probably one of the biggest departures from people who come from Dungeons and Dragons are used to, you know, the binary, you roll your D20 and then you either succeed at what you're doing or or you fail. And that for me coming into PBTA, PBTA games, that was the big thing. And it to me, it creates a lot of interesting things because the way the math of the dice works, you're, you generally land mostly in that partial hit range for the most right. part and that, and that so it allows you to continue you know like you succeed at what you're doing but it that gives you the whoever's running the game sort of excuses to introduce further complications and interesting things into the game which i think is great that, that is kind of in a lot of ways i think pbt games are designed around that that seven to nine range absolutely because for many moves there's a sort of specified prompt for what happens on the seven through nine it might be you know the gm will give you a hard bargain right mm-hmm. or the gm will introduce a, a, a cost or a complication and so players pursue their character's goals but along the way they rack up these costs and complications and it usually generates kind of a more and more intricate story right a kind of plot that feels like it has its own momentum yeah. thanks to what the the dice introduce into the into the game yeah, and so you used a word there that if you're not familiar with PBT games, it might people might have missed, but it's a very specific game mechanic. PBT games you use the word move. Could you explain a little bit uh, about about how moves work and what what is special about about moves? Yeah, absolutely. In in almost all the Powered by the Apocalypse games I'm familiar with, this term move is used in a slightly idiosyncratic way, uh, stemming from Apocalypse World itself, where uh, moves are kind of specified bits of the fiction that include a a trigger you know something you do uh, an instruction often you know roll the dice right and then a a result something that comes out of that so Mm. let me give let me give a a nice and easy example from that first game i played masks superhero game in masks when you unleash your powers you you trigger the move by saying uh, by narrating how your character is kind of pushing their powers to the limit, right? Kind of doing something that's beyond just the normal use case of their superheroic abilities, but something that uh, kind of tests what they can do. You roll the dice and add a, a stat that's relevant. You know, on a on a full hit, you know, when you've rolled a 10 plus, you get to do this new thing with your powers. You've really unleashed successfully. On a partial hit, it says the the way the the move is written. It says you know the effect is unstable or temporary unless you mark a condition. So mm-hmm. this is kind of this like hard bargain built in here where you know if you say the effect is unstable or temporary that's really giving the GM permission to you know have your power uh, or the effect of your power you know uh, cut out at the most dramatic moment, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but you could you can push past that, you could avoid that by marking a condition, another bit of the game's kind of mechanical economy that creates more story and more complication mm-hmm. in a different fashion going forward. And on yeah. a miss on a miss, the GM gets to make a move of their own, and GM moves are more like kind of narrated reactions within the fiction. Because yeah. a pattern in almost all the the Powered by the Apocalypse games I'm familiar with is that uh, the GM or the MC or whatever the game facilitator figure is called uh, rarely rolls dice for right. the, the moves of non-player characters and things. The kind of yeah. the game will have a list of list of GM moves that sort of suggest you know best practices for how the GM should um, 
keep the story going when players roll a miss or when there's a golden opportunity or when there's a lull in the action and everyone looks to the GM. But -hmm. those moves don't require the GM rolling dice. They're just things that they can narrate happening. Right. Yeah, that, I think that's one of the another one of the biggest changes is, is the fact that the GM very rarely rolls dice. Uh, that it's, it's all player driven and that the GM moves which are typically separated into what are called soft moves and hard moves as you dive in. Um, but, you know, they're sort of prescribed that these are, you know, rules that the GM has like, OK, you can in these situations, you can do these things. Uh, it's, it's not like, oh, I'm going to have my org roll against you. It's everything's a reaction to the player's actions or the uh, the result of their dice. And the other thing just about moves is when you, you talk about the triggers, one of the things that I think is interesting is that they, it's it's very fiction first. It's it's driven by the narrative, whereas in more traditional role-playing games like Dungeons & Dragons, it's it's kind of mechanics first. Like, I want to do this, I'm going to engage the game mechanics in this way, and then it resolves into the story. Whereas with PBTA games, you're you're basically just kind of you know having the conversation, driving the narrative, and then the narrative triggers the mechanics instead of the other way around. Yeah, definitely. That's kind of why I'd say story forward is a big mm-hmm. part of what this engine's going for. Absolutely. All right, so let's just dive right into it. Tonight we're going to be talking about our top five PBTA games, and so there are there are a ton of them. So it's it's po- but it's, it's possible we'll have some overlap, uh, but we'll see as we go through. We haven't looked at each other's lists. I have an assumption about at the very least one game that will be on your list, <laughs> but we'll we'll see as we go through. So why don't we go ahead and start your number five game? Absolutely. Well, let me first toss in a little honorable mention to mm-hmm. Apocalypse World itself, the original. So much of this whole type of gaming wouldn't have been possible or wouldn't have been you know created in this form if it weren't for the influence of apocalypse world that said i've limited myself on this list to games that i have played or run in most cases for for you know a number of sessions or a campaign so i haven't actually gotten to play the the granddaddy of them all apocalypse world and yeah, and I'm I'm in the same boat. I, I I gave myself the same the same caveat, and I I did throw in Apocalypse World as my honorable mention. I've I've read it quite a bit, but I've never actually run it. The genre doesn't speak to me personally a lot, or to the people I run games with. So it's not something I've ever actually gotten to the table. But I I definitely want to give the shout out to to the uh, the granddaddy of them all. Yes, yeah. So gratitude to Vincent and Gabe. Baker. I think someday I'll probably play Apocalypse World just because I'm I'm pretty into this genre as a as a whole. All right. So with that honorable mention, uh, I'm going to go on to my number five from this top five list, and that is Dungeon World, designed by Sage Latora and Adam Coble and published by their company Sage Cobalt. Uh, it's all the dungeon delving and polyhedral dice you love, but in a Powered by the Apocalypse package. So this is kind of the PBTA game that takes D&D as the genre that it's emulating. Character creation is way streamlined thanks to the introduction of playbooks. So the classes of D&D are rendered as Dungeon World playbooks, the cleric, the paladin, the rogue, the wizard. Many of those most archetypical classes are there and kind of they not on- the playbooks not only include your kind of powers, equipment, you know, mechanical accoutrements but a little bit of the story built in where there's mm-hmm. sort of a way the wizard is characterized, a way the rogue is characterized, kind of leaning into what's kind of most fun and evocative about those archetypes that's all like baked into the playbooks you get. Dungeon World is also my number five on the list. Hey. Uh, so we're thinking of some li- similar lines here. Dungeon World is basically how, when I describe Dungeon World, 
to people. It's how people who don't play Dungeons and Dragons think Dungeons and Dragons works. <laughs> like if 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 you were talking to people who have never played a role playing game and you know explained Dungeons and Dragons and then sat down at the table, they would probably expect it works a lot more like Dungeon World than how actual Dungeons & Dragons works. And so for that reason, I love Dungeon World as an introductory game, uh, not just a PBTA, which is, I think it's a great bridge between Dungeons & Dragons, which of course is the most popular role-playing game, and so most people have experience with that, bridging them from Dungeons & Dragons into PBTA. But I think it's just a great introduction to role-playing games in general, because if they're interested, they're probably tangentially interested, again, through Dungeons & Dragons or the fantasy genre, that sort of dungeon crawl genre. And so I think it's a great sort of bridge for people into the hobby. Absolutely. I like part of how the kind of advice for the GM goes in Dungeon World, where really the GM's encouraged to let the players weigh in on some of the world building and kind of Mm -hmm. In that way, drill down from the broader fantasy tropes you always start out with, wizard, barbarian, elf, dwarf, uh, to kind of define your specific setting, partly by asking interesting, asking questions about Mm -hmm. what you're curious about to the players. You know, what is the you know elf homeland like? Mm -hmm. Oh, you say that the elves are engaged in constant civil war. Interesting. Adam Coble, one of the designers, he has, he does a lot of great work on YouTube and and Twitch and all sorts of streaming the RPG community. But on his YouTube channel, he does a series called uh, Office Hours where he takes questions and, you know, spends an hour talking about them. He recently did a video explaining how to run a Dungeon World one shot. The one shot is basically a, you know, either a one session or a, a, you know, a small campaign where you're, it's not continually going on, but basically how to use the character creation in a Dungeon World one shot to, to world build. And so it's a great look at how you can use these mechanics and engage the players, ask them questions to basically go in with no prep and come out on the other side of character creation with this, you know, really interesting world that has all sorts of hooks and everything for, for the party. Yeah, I think that's great. You know, if you're coming from more of a D&D background, you'll find there's still some mechanical crunch in Dungeon World. You know, you're mm-hmm. you're rolling those differently sized dice for damage and healing. Uh, but the main resolution mechanic is that signature PBTA 2D6, mm-hmm. three different tiers of success. Right. Uh, so, yeah, you're right about it being potentially a bridge. Because for me, you know, I played other PBT games and then checked out Dungeon World and it was like, oh, there's a little, there's more mechanics here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, you know, is more streamlined compared to the, right. know, the the kind of at least the run out of the box D and D experience. I know yeah. everyone homebrews D and D to some extent, and maybe mm-hmm. some of those converge on Dungeon World. Yeah, and it, and Dungeon because of that, Dungeon World occupies a sort of interesting space in the larger PBTA community. A lot of people who are really deep into PBTA feel like Dungeon World isn't PBTA enough for them, and so they have complaints about that. Again, they're you know they don't really recognize you know, the, the the design intent of it is to sort of be that bridge that lives in that sort of weird, sort of extra crunchy space, adding the extra sort of fiddly bits from Dungeons and Dragons that they may not like in their, you know, their more story-focused PBT games with the random damage and, and things like that. But it really does occupy an interesting space right there. Yeah, and it's, you know, like the genre it's evoking, namely mm-hmm. D&D, eminently hackable, mm-hmm. uh, I at conventions will run a Dungeon World one shot that's set in the world of Ravnica from Magic the Gathering, mm-hmm. and I found that you know applying it to this other established fantasy setting has worked super well. You know right. I've written some custom moves to evoke the guilds of that setting, 
but Dungeon World serves as a great basis for anything that's got sort of a fantasy adventure feel. Sort of the main reason, just besides the fact that I think it's a great introduction to PBTA as a genre and a great bridge between Dungeons and Dragons into into PBTA and the the GM section in Dungeon World is is fantastic. Really, it really teaches you how to run run the game well, how to run PBTA style games as well. But I think every everyone who is a Dungeons and Dragons dungeon master should at the very least run one session of Dungeon World, and then you will immediately be five times better as a Dungeons and Dragons DM for having run and read Dungeon World. There's all sorts of things that you can you can take and run your games. Every every Dungeons and Dragons game that I run, I use fronts, which originally came from Apocalypse World, but there's all sorts of of PBTA or Dungeon World design principles, uh, or at least on at least on the GM side of things, that you are you can very easily take over to your Dungeons and Dragons game and it will it'll make your game better even if you end up not liking Dungeon World itself. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Let's move on since we have the same number five. What's your number four game? All right. My number four game on this list of top five Powered by the Apocalypse games is Monster Hearts, specifically Monster Hearts 2, the mm-hmm. name that the creator kind of gave to the second edition of, of Monster Hearts. Monster Hearts is by Avery Alder and published by Buried Without Ceremony. Uh, it's a game about teenagers who are monsters as in vampires, werewolves, etc., making bad choices and facing or skirting the consequences. The creator describes it thus on their website, Monster Hearts 2 lets you and your friends create stories about sexy monsters, teenage angst, personal horror, and secret love triangles. When you play, you explore the terror and confusion of having a body that is changing without your permission. And I think, you know, by that criteria, like how well does it get into that very specific set of themes that it lays out for itself? Uh, I have to say Monster Hearts 2 is an incredibly successful RPG because it, you know, it really delves into teen paranormal romance mm-hmm. and every aspect of its design kind of points towards the the messiness and the often mm, mm, poorly thought out nature of life as a, a teenage monster or just a teenager who feels like a monster absolutely and i think that's one of the best things that pbt games in general do is that the way all the moves and the playbooks and everything work together and that really helps you even if you're not super familiar with the the inspirations for the game the you know the, the background genre uh, just the game, how the game setup itself really helps you learn that genre, and you know how to play in that in that genre just by you know following your following your moves and and things like that. That you've if you never read or watched teen paranormal romance things, you can still pick up Monster Hearts or most any other PBTA games, and and the playbook will sort of teach you how to exist in that genre. Yeah, absolutely. An aspect of Monster Hearts playbooks or skins, uh, as the game terms them, that I really like is there's a element of each skin called the darkest self kind of it lays it out you know with a little paragraph about sort of the the darkest self of of this archetype the kind of worst thing you can become the way you'll interact with the world when you're having your worst day and you know being your worst self so the werewolf you know transforms into a terrifying wolf creature but the rest of this paragraph also kind of explains the attitude you play in that mode. Uh, you crave power and dominance, and those are earned through bloodshed. If anyone attempts to stand in your way, they must be brought down and made to bleed. You escape your darkest self when you wound someone you really care about or the sun rises, whichever happens first. So every darkest self is this kind of incredible little package of story, which both functions as a way to give you, the player, permission to really like 
lean way into you know everything dark in your character as you role play the game like makes you do this because there's consequences of moves that trigger your darkest self sometimes and the fact that the darkest self includes includes that escape clause builds in a little arc where you know you see like how much damage will your character do before whatever it is that makes you leave your darkest self happens mm-hmm. right before you you know in many cases it's you do something that breaks you out of it due to the 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 regret you feel or sometimes it's something that's a bit of a flag for another player where right. the to escape your darkest self you must come to see how someone else feels more trapped than you do and that's kind of a skin's darkest self kind of flags that for another player that they should try to reach out to this character who's having this terrible day empathize with them to like give them a plausible way to escape from the darkness i think the darkest self is is a great part of of the game that helps drive the genre are there any other parts of monster arts that whether mechanically or if there's a really evocative playbook or move that really just shines for you and and helps put it number four on your list yeah absolutely i mean i'd say my theory about the moves of monster hearts 2 is that all of them are traps i think that the moves look like ways to be cool and awesome but in fact they're very much about tempting your character towards like towards a death spiral and then mm-hmm. you know and then you might end up in the death spiral go darker self be able to break out through that escape clause but it's sort of uh there's a there's a bit of a winking sense to the whole game you know because it's about these overdramatic teenage lives and the moves kind of force you in that direction the way to trigger the moves you know always kind of creates drama in and of itself uh, here's here's a move i like a lot partly because of the options on the seven through nine uh, run away is a basic move that every player has access to in monster hearts and when you run away roll with volatile on a 10 and up uh, you get away to a safe place on a seven through nine you get away but choose one you run into something worse you cause a big scene or you leave something behind and you can see that juicy story possibilities spill mm-hmm. out of each of those uh, seven through nine results so even if you know you're trying to get your character out of a bad situation and roll run away, it's plausible that you end up choosing that they run into something worse, or at least that they cause a big scene and now everyone remembers the time they yelled at someone at this party and then like bit them and then ran away, right? Monster Hearts one that I've I've read and, and never gotten to the table, but I, I definitely uh, love the design on it. And I think it's a, it's a fantastic evolution of Hawkins World. It tightens up things really well. And like, like you said, the the moves are just so evocative for the genre and, and really drive the, the drama of the game. So my number four is the Worldwide Wrestling RPG. Uh, Nathan uh, Paletta, uh, NDP Design. And so this is one where, like I was saying, with PBT games, they can really help you even if you aren't super up on the background material. I do not watch or follow professional wrestling at all. And yet this game, I, I can run and play this game just the way it works, the playbooks, everything, you can you can play it just fine. World of Wrestling is, of course, a game where you play as professional wrestlers. You know, so think WWE or things like that. So you're playing these these wrestlers who you're having, you're putting on the show for the audience, but then there's also back and forth between the characters behind the scenes, and there's this interplay between you know, what's what's real and what's what's part of the show, things like that. But I I think it's a great game for me. Again, just because how easily it gets you into the world of wrestling, even if you have never played it. I have lots of friends who are interested in it, and I've just never been able to get into it. But I was 
was able to take my love for RPGs and and go into into this and feel that sort of connection with them. And that there's there's a lot of great mechanics in here too that I that I absolutely love. Yeah, I haven't gotten to play that one, but I've heard a podcast actual play that mm-hmm. made it sound like a like a total blast. My understanding from that is that part of how the wrestling matches work in Worldwide mm-hmm. Wrestling is the the GM as the the booker, you know, the management kind of decides who will ultimately win win the match. How does mm-hmm. that shake out in play? Like, is it ever a thing where like the players rebel against the booking and kind of push back yeah. there? Yeah. So there are. So yeah. So generally, the the booker you know, basically decides who wins the match. And there are certain there are certain moves where if you you know succeed on a ten plus certain certain moves will allow you to to change a change a booking. Wow. Um, so there are ways to do that, but then you'll deal with the fallout of that because you're playing like you're this company putting on this entertainment product. And so the bookers, you know, the, the management, they're in charge. And so they're, they have a reason why they decided that, that this person is going to win this match. And so if, if you go against that, that's going to create story challenges for, for the sort of real life of these characters. And so there's interesting things in that. And one of the ways I love how the, uh, the, the matches work is that they have this mechanic basically for who's in control of the match and so depending on different factors leading into the match one of the wrestlers or the other will start in control and that basically gives them narrative control over the framing of the scene and so they can start narrating how things go how the their opponent's responding generally there's a back and forth but whoever's in control has the sort of veto power over it and then eventually that of course will will lead to the actual triggering of moves and on that seven to nine that we talked about one of the typical consequences of a seven to nine is that you achieve whatever it is you're doing but then control goes over to the other wrestler and so oh, there's this cool. back there's this sort of back and forth narrative control over how the scene goes and then eventually building to this point where you're building momentum throughout this match which is, which is a mechanic ended on certain things to increase your results or eventually to use finishing move that you need to spend momentum to do this and so that kind of you know ends the match and so at that point whoever the the person the creative who's in in control you know, will tell them okay well this person is booked to win this match so how do you get there and that's kind of, that's kind of how you wrap up the uh, the match, which I think it's it's a it's absolutely fantastic mechanic for running this sort of cinematic fighting um, that you would expect from professional wrestling. That's really cool. I love the idea of momentum as something you you mm-hmm. build up to get to the end of the fight because that obviously helps kind of guide the play to follow along a narrative and create a, create the story mm-hmm. of the match. It sounds like both sort of the the story the audience sees and the behind the scenes story of the wrestlers themselves and their own dramas. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, so you, throughout the match, you're building this momentum. And then the other mechanic it sort of bleeds into is called heat, which is sort of a representation of the relationship between the two wrestlers and how well the audience reacts to that pairing. And so there's all these during character creation, you know, there's asking these questions where, um, you know, like one of the one of the playbooks, they have a thing like, you know, her fellow players, like, who's the only other, who's the other person that can actually stand up to me in the ring? Mm-hmm. And if, you know, whoever answers, OK, I'll be that person. You you answer that question and you gain a heat between you. And so there's basically like how excited how excited does the crowd get when these two wrestlers are going against each other? And so you're trying to build heat at any point. If you reach for if, if you reach heat, you you build your audience score. And so, if, and then you build your audience score to to get advances. And so they all kind of the momentum bleeds into heat, bleeds into audience, bleeds into your advances, where you you know basically your XP, where you're getting new moves and things like that. I like uh, it. Yeah. I mean the the way to make players want to do a thing is mm-hmm. tie it to XP. Absolutely. Uh, 
And so the key when you're designing this is figure out what the like fun part of the genre is and have mm-hmm. that be where the XP comes in and having yeah. it built to into like heat between wrestlers and the mm-hmm. audience's appreciation of you. That makes total sense to me. Yeah, absolutely. And then there's just a couple other things. One thing I love just about the book in general is that they have again for for people who aren't whether you're uh, running the game or playing, you aren't familiar with you know some of the terminology or things like that. Uh, they have an illustrated guide to some very like popular professional wrestling moves. And so you, you know, as you're narrating your scene, if you're not familiar with these things, you can look and say, okay, well, I, I get him in this headlock or whatever. And you can look and like, see if there's a picture that looks like someone in the headlock. I'm like, oh, that's, you know, the, you know, the Tennessee, whatever, you know, use these names. So that's another fun way to kind of get you in the mood for the wrestling. And then they have, they have a role for the announcer. So one of the people who who's rest, don't they don't have a wrestler in the match they have an announcer role where they could basically get to hype up the crowd and and sort of just you know describe in flowery language like you're you know on the television broadcast what's happening and they have the ability to put someone up so basically they can they don't have to uh, but once per match for each of the wrestlers they can increase the result of a role so they can take you know, a six render and bump it up to a 79 or take a 79 and bump it up to a 10 at their discretion, just because they think it would be a, a fun thing to do, to do. So if someone's narrating something really cool, roll a seven to nine, whoever's the announcer, they can use that, that, that uh, ability to bump it up to a 10 plus result. Nice. That's a really cool little twist, uh, mm-hmm. giving that additional role to other players. Yeah. And so it's, it's a, it's a nice mechanic, but also it's a good way to keep someone who's not directly involved in, in the match uh, to get them involved and they don't uh, kind of drift off while they're not you know involved in the action right away. What is your number three? Yeah. So my number three on my top five powered by the apocalypse games list is hearts of Wulin. Uh, now this is a game that's currently on Kickstarter as mm-hmm. of this recording. I don't know if it will still be the release of this episode, yeah, I think Kickstarter will probably be done by the time we release, but it, yeah, it's currently on Kickstarter. Hearts of Wulin is a game by Lowell Francis and Agatha Chang, published by The Gauntlet, which is an online gaming community that you can be part of. Check out gauntlet-rpg.com for more information. Um, but Hearts of Wulin describes itself as a role-playing game of wuxia melodrama. Players take the role of skilled martial artists in a world of rival clans, conspiracies, and obligations. Now, if, like me, you don't know much about Wuxia, you might think about the movie Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, mm-hmm. uh, which is a parody or homage to this whole genre. It's a genre that's hugely popular in China about martial artists torn between what their heart desires and what their duty dictates. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the game really leans in on that, you know, the making central mechanics about the conflicting loyalties that your character has you know you're uh, by default every pc is a master martial artist but their greatest battle is against themselves there's a mechanic called inner conflict that is triggered as you come face to face with the things that are pulling you in different directions you know when you when you roll inner conflict you might kind of stoically weather the storms of fortune here or you might find yourself having to flee the scene because your emotions are too powerful for you i've gotten to you know play test this since i played it before you know the the final publication but it was a really well put together game you know even in that playtest form and i'm excited for the final version to get out there for everyone because Mm. this is a genre i'm less familiar with but the game just made me really excited about it by putting putting that you know that drama 
so at the four. I love this game, and this uh, Hearts of Wooling is actually number two on my list. Oh, uh, nice. So again, even though even though it is not yet released, I have have taken the playtest packet and, and done some stuff with it. And it is another, it's a game I absolutely love. And I actually, I, I love the, uh, the Wuja genre and working on my own sort of Wuja or uh, Shenja, which is a related genre. Um, I've been working on my own Shenja RPG for, for a while now. And, and I've been working on a sort of Wuja adjacent novel for a while. So I, I absolutely love this genre. And this is one of my favorite ways that the genre has been put into into the uh, the, the role-playing game activity. It's absolutely beautiful. That the inner conflict thing that you're talking about, your entanglements, which are a, a, a mechanical bit there, where you, when you create your character, you have these questions where you basically are, are filling the blank about these entanglements. So like things like, okay, well, I... I'm in love with this person. They were, um, you know, disowned by my master, or things like that. So you're you're coming into these emotional conflicts between different characters, uh, either the other players at the table or characters that you're creating for the world. And so that those entanglements really drive the uh, the action of the story. Absolutely, yeah. The other thing I really love in Hearts of Wulin is the way that duels are resolved with just one role mm-hmm. and kind of you can you can narrate all the cool back and forth you want but the question of you know how the duel ends comes down to a one die roll and sometimes not even that because if you're uh, let me let me restate that slightly yeah you if know. you're if you're at the the same scale it comes down to the result of the die comes down to the die roll which is that scale mechanic is something I absolutely love. Yeah, so the GM kind of will will decide what the scale of you know antagonist is if you're approaching a conflict with them, and if their scale is lower than yours, you will you'll you'll win the fight, right? And the role will just determine how handily you do it or whether you face consequences along the way. Uh, mm-hmm. If their scale is the same as yours, then it re- it comes down to that role whether whether they win or whether you prevail. But if your foe is higher scale. All the role determines is whether you get to narrate your loss or, or the GM mm-hmm. does. You just yeah. if you if you're you know if you're the young upstart and you're going up against the ancient martial arts master who's trained for a century, then you will not win. They mm-hmm. are a higher scale than you, and if you just go into that fight, all you'll achieve is a um, perhaps a loss where you save some face if you if you roll mm-hmm. a ten plus. Obviously, this is a game where your characters will probably sometimes have to face those foes of higher scale. So what the game builds in as a way to to even the scales is a training montage man- mechanic, which mm-hmm. is uh, probably one of my favorite moves that, that exists oh, yeah, here. Oh, yeah, yes. This, this, you're referring to the, uh, the new technique move, which I agree, I have this written down here in notes, is my absolute favorite thing. This this whole idea of, of scale, of facing someone with higher scale that you absolutely cannot beat, and then having to sort of go retreat you know, into the wilderness and, and meditate, you know, beneath a waterfall for several weeks while you, you know, replay the duel in your mind and sort of study their techniques and, and sort of try and seek enlightenment or practice some new technique to be able to defeat them. It's an absolute, you know, great genre convention. And I love how they implemented that mechanically. Yeah. When I played this game, uh, you know, I was going up against this, you know, kind of ancient wily martial arts master who could handily defeat me. Um, but uh, by watching his technique several times, I was able to go off and develop a new technique to defeat mm-hmm. him that involved learning how to fight blindfolded because mm-hmm. 
his fighting style was all about he like sees the little movements of your eyes and can predict predict your every uh, move. But if you learn to fight blindfolded, then you can't do that. And it was so yeah. over the top. Uh, I loved it as That's... a uh, you know a real like melodramatic story mm-hmm. moment that gets into what's so fantastic about this martial arts uh, storytelling. Absolutely, and I love that so much. And and one of one of the the tiny bits of the the new technique move that I love is that when you roll the new technique, the in in place of like a, a a stat or an attribute, you're rolling how many times you've faced this person or seen their techniques, and so it encourages you. Know, the more you face them, like you could face this person who's higher scale than you several times, and they could be several you know several scales higher than you, and so but the more you face them, you know the better you get at going back and trying to do this. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, I love this too, and it's kind of related to my pick of roller wrestling. Um, Lowell um, from the Gauntlet has, you know, he has some actual plays of Hearts of Wooing on his YouTube channel, and this dual mechanic in one of the ones that I watch, he's actually sort of uses the the roller wrestling, the sort of in control scene framing from World of Wrestling, hmm. as a way to run the duels in Hearts of Wooing, which I love. That it's in the scale, sort of in a a lot of ways it works similarly to having the match booked in World Wide Wrestling, where you know what the result of this is going to be. You can do this sort of back and forth scene framing, you know, to to dramatize the action if you'd like, uh, even though you know what the result is going to end up being. Very cool. So, you you say that Hearts of Wulin is actually your number two game. Mm-hmm. So, tell me what, what you have in position number three on your list. Yep. So uh, number three is a uh, a game that is sort of on the outside uh, of people would generally consider PBTA, but it is definitely PBTA inspired. The designers even been on the uh, the Plus One Forward podcast, which for people who aren't familiar is a uh, podcast focused on PBTA games where uh, they interview designers of various games. Uh, Hosted my... by the ever enthusiastic Rich Rogers. Yes, exactly. Uh, but so my number three is Iron Sworn by Sean Tompkin. That's a so, single player game, right? Or uh, it can be. So that's that's one of the the, the biggest selling points for me of Iron Sworn is that uh, out of the box it is able for you to run it solo. And so normally when people say solo, they mean GM and one player. It's it's solitary. You can run this by yourself. You just kind of sit down with a book and and play through your story. So that's that's the biggest sort of selling point for Iron Sworn. You can also play it uh, GMless with a group, or you can play it traditionally with a a, a GM running for a group. Uh, but the, the the biggest selling point for Iron Sworn is that it can be run uh, completely solo. That's really fascinating as a flexibility to build into your game, just including like how many people and what roles they take on with relate in relation to playing it. So the, you know the way this does is they have uh, what are called basically oracles, which are basically a, there's a whole bunch of of random tables you can roll on whenever things come up and and sort of drive the action forward. And so the main sort of driving factor of Ironsworn is this idea of of taking a vow and undergoing a quest. And so where the the name of the game comes from is that in in the world these characters you you swear a vow on a piece of iron. So whether that's you're touching your weapon or your armor or some sort of amulet, you you make a you make a vow, you, you swear this oath on a piece of iron and undertake a quest for someone. And so the way you progress and gain experience is by going out and completing or abandoning these quests. Have you have you gotten to play it in all these different forms, like with a group GM list, with a group GMing, by yourself, just working, just, you know, mm-hmm. working with the Oracle? Yeah, so I've 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 done uh, two solo playthroughs just by myself with this game. Um, at some point, I really what I really want to do is you know, sort of open up a blog and just kind of track a solo playthrough of this. 
And then another thing I love about this game is it is it's eminently hackable. But so I I did a, a little hack of Iron Sworn to put it into a sci-fi setting and ran it for a group that way. Nice. Is that is it called Laser Sworn by any chance? <laughs> it, no, it was not. I I didn't actually come up with a name for my hack, but I was I was inspired by for for you Star Wars nerds out there, it was sort of a Mandalorian inspired game. So the the Mandalorians in Star Wars they have a special um, metal that's special to their cult- culture called uh, Beskar. So it was kind of focused around that. So we kept we kept the iron in there. So I've run it for sci-fi hack for a group, and then I've run the traditional Iron Sworn uh, solo by myself. And it's it's amazing how well it works. Questions you know that the in the answers that the Oracle gives are, are open ended enough for you to you know, have some room for creativity in there, you know, and, and it allows you to be surprised, which is great. Because a lot of people, when you're playing a solo RPG like this or something that, you know, the concern people have is, okay, well, if I'm running the game and playing the game, like, how am I ever going to be surprised by what's happening? And, and you, you can de- you're, you'll definitely be surprised by what happens when you're, you're playing Iron Sworn. I think a really cool thing is uh, that this game pushes the boundaries of what PBTA, PBTA can be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know this is a genre that's not rigidly defined and i mm-hmm. think it's good for people to take inspiration from pbta but explore really different directions of gameplay to you know broaden what's possible and push at our imaginations for how we can take the tools of this one set of games and apply them to making cool stuff in this hobby more broadly yeah, absolutely. And, 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 I mean, Vincent Baker himself, the one of the designers of Pockets World, he's said pretty recently, I think just back in May, uh, he had a, a, a pretty long Twitter thread about that, just that PBT as a genre and like any genre has, you know, the mainstream, it has fringes, it has the cutting edge, has outliers, things like that. Um, and that's a better way to think of it than, you know, like, OK, well, how do we really define PBTA? Does this game count or not? Um, yeah. He's always refused to rigidly define it, and it really just says if mm-hmm. if you think that inspiration, some inspiration from your game, could be traced back to Apocalypse World, you have my blessing to to call it PBTA. So that's that's Iron Sworn. I definitely recommend people check that out. In addition to being solo play, so there's no excuse like oh I don't have a group or I can't get to this table. Also completely free, so it's another one I would definitely recommend people check out. So let's let's move on. That was my number three, and we already talked about my number two. So what is your number two? My number two is Urban Shadows by Andrew Medeiros and Mark Diaz Truman, published by Magpie Games. Uh, they describe Urban Shadows as a fantasy, uh, an urban fantasy role-playing game where you'll play characters struggling to survive in a dark urban environment drowning in supernatural politics. The game focuses heavily on the gritty drama and tense violence that we see so often in works like The Dresden Files, Angel, and Supernatural. So yeah, Urban Shadows, it's in the name. It's all about the city. It's all about the interconnectedness of a set of supernatural beings or humans who are in the know about the supernatural that are part of this crisscrossing network of debts. And uh, you know, similarly, similar to the way those entanglements worked in Hearts of Wulin to kind of drive the story forward, the debts in Urban Shadows really push the story engine because every debt has mechanical consequences once you're in someone's debt they can call that in and you know ask you to to do something they want you know to like back them up in a fight to introduce them to someone you know that they're trying to cut a deal with right and if you you know if you honor the debt you know you're good uh, though it does like constrain your own actions as a pc if Mm -hmm. you refuse to honor the debt well that's a move you have to roll 
right. and you can you know you can only refuse a debt or you if you if you roll a on refuse a debt you might get the consequence of you know you you wriggle out of it this time but you owe them even more so then they add another debt on you right mm-hmm. and so you're kind of accruing debts you're resolving debts uh, you're kind of pursuing whatever it is your character desperately needs in this city uh, while you know politics are turning all around you and vampires, werewolves, the fae, everyone's got an angle and wants a piece of the action. Yeah, I love that. Another game that was honorable mention for me that didn't make it quite on my list is Uncharted Worlds. It's a, uh, a sci-fi PBTA game, but they it's also another game that's driven, really driven by this idea of debts, you know, trying to get out of debt and uh, get people into your debt. I, I love that mechanic. What you talked about with being having debts called in on you and, and having to to resist that or you know forcing player choice pbta games generally don't like things that force players to not be in control maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the interesting ways that you, know, you talk about the resist thing but um the way that pbta games or urban shadows in particular offer you those choices where you know you don't want to do something but the game kind of makes it worth your while to make that choice often the way that works is the game you know, has a mechanical temptation for you that it dangles. Um, in this case, the way experience works in Urban Shadows incentivizes you to to deal with all the different factions because you have to check off each faction, and there are four, Mortality, Night, Power, and Wild. You have to check off each faction to to advance, you know, to, to gain new moves and otherwise get get cool stuff for your character. And so... If you owe a debt to a wizard and you need power to you need to check off power to advance, then if the wizard calling in that debt gives you the opportunity, okay, I could I could honor this debt and get my advancement, or I could take the risk of trying to wriggle out of it if you know if I I, I find this wizard unsavory and don't want to fill this uh, obligation I have to him. So the so the advancement is one system in the game that really kind of you know, pushes you to to deal with all the factions at least on some level. You you don't have to be fulfilling debts to to do it. There's other ways to engage with the faction, including like scoping out a place of power. But to get to one of those, you might need to uh, have taken on some debt. You know, to get the wizard to bring you to the 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 grand wizard meeting hall hidden in the recesses of the city government, so that you can scope out that place of power. And kind of a parallel sort of advancement track is tracked by corruption in Urban Shadows, right. uh, with the idea that your character, however pure their intentions, you know, is at risk of being turned into something truly monstrous by the forces of the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so. You know, in the short term, when you're playing just just a one shot, corruption sometimes feels like a freebie. It's like, oh yeah, on a seven through nine in this role, I can choose to take harm or mark corruption. Yeah, sure, I'll mark corruption. That just fills up mm-hmm. this track that uh, that I don't really care about as much. Right. But if you're playing long term, if you're playing a campaign, uh, corruption becomes it kind of grows in importance as a major element. Where you know you may have filled up your corruption track a couple times, gotten some of these corruption advances that give you access to powerful but dark moves that always make you mark more corruption Mm -hmm. and you might find yourself kind of spiraling towards the final corruption advance where you retire your character and the mc takes them over and can turn them into a threat right you kind of if you go all the way and give in to corruption you'll stop being a player character and become one of the many kind of claws of the city that the 
the GM, the MC has to create challenges for the other player characters. With so many factions in Urban Shadows and, and debts pulling characters in different ways, what sort of ties characters as a group together and what are they trying to achieve together in this sort of tangled web of, of the city? Yeah, absolutely. This was an interesting thing about playing the game uh, a couple times you know, uh, as a one-shot and as a short campaign and then reading the whole rule book to prepare to play it myself. The... The, the game does still think of the characters as somewhat of a party, right? Mm-hmm. Even if they have their own agendas and their own uh, loyalties, the game sort of uh, tells the MC to find ways to to align the players, right? And some of that is just like uh, the players have debts on each other they can call in, right? And NPCs might, you know, fill in the gap between two PCs and call in a debt. And, you know, basically on a meta level, the players and the GM work to make sure the the PCs can team up sometimes and especially if you're going to be you know if if you're investigating a vampire crime boss and want to take him down then you're definitely going to recruit your werewolf friend to back you up uh, mm-hmm. because you need the muscle right and so by giving the PCs you know things that each that other PCs need uh, and by kind of instructing the GM to give them opportunities to to team up and you know do things as a party the game keeps some of that sense of you know we're our, our, our players are on a team even if sometimes it turns out you know you have to like spend a debt to try to convince another pc not to kill someone because you want to question them right right and so yeah, that's that's interesting and uh this idea of of this group sort of being aligned and work together kind of leads into my number one on my pbta games list which is another game at sort of the edge of what could be considered pbta which is blades in the dark uh-huh and so, Blaze in the Dark, one of the f- first things that drew me and got me so excited about this game is this idea uh, of of the crew itself, the group itself as a character that it, you know mechanically has. You have your your crew has its own character sheet, basically. And that was one of the first things that got me so excited about Blaze in the Dark. I had been spending a lot of time trying to design a an rpg inspired by the XCOM video games and one of the things i had been struggling with a lot was sort of how to deal with the the running of XCOM as an organization instead of just you know the tactical battles part and when i first saw blades in the dark i remember where i was i was in san francisco in a hotel on a work trip when i first saw the kickstarter for blades in the dark and i ended up staying up way later than i should have um, <laughs> for having to work the next day just reading through it and again really brought in by this this concept of, of the crew as a character yeah that's fantastic so blades in the dark i have read but have not gotten to play uh, mm-hmm. i'm really hoping to rectify that though because it seems like such a such a cool new stage in mm-hmm. the expansion of pbta games such that there's even parallel term to Powered right. by the Apocalypse people are using for games most directly inspired by Blades in the Dark. Uh, they're calling them Forged in the Dark. And I know there's a base yeah. one called Scum and Villainy and mm-hmm. a few others in the works that are, that are based on John Harper's work for Blades. John Harper, I think, considers Blades in the Dark a Powered by the Apocalypse game himself. But, you know, it, it definitely is sort of, I think, the edge of that step. And then beyond that, you get into this Forge in the Dark idea. And there's some games coming down that I love. Like you mentioned Scum and Villainy, which is the the space one. I am absolutely in love with Band of Blades, a sort of military, a dark, dark, gritty fantasy 
military company, Forge of the Dark, which just is is bringing the designs into an even cooler place. But but Blades in the Dark, there's just so many things I love about it. You know, the, like I said, that, that crew as a character is a big component of these Forge in the Dark games, Blades in the Dark. The setting is just so evocative. Anyone who's played Dishonored, you know, or, or the Thief games or read things like The Lies of Locke Lamora, you'll kind of get an idea for for the setting of the game that you're you're playing a basically a criminal gang. So your crew can you your your smugglers or your assassins or your thieves or things like that and you're in this dark fantasy city that's haunted by ghosts and it's in a big you know bubble protected by these lightning towers that are powered by the blood of these demon whales called leviathans that that people go out into the into this you know black ocean to hunt and things like that it's just such an evocative setting yeah, i love her uh, when you start describing setting blades in the dark you're like oh yeah yeah it's kind of like like dickensian criminals and you're like ah but there's also ghosts Mm-hmm. And lightning walls powered by demon whale leviathan blood. Exactly. <laughs> it kind of, you know, it starts out kind of gritty and street level. And then you pull mm-hmm. back and see there is like kind of a gonzo dark fantasy element in the background of the setting. I love, I love the setting. I love one of the things I love about Blaze of the Dark is is the structure that's built into the game. Or you have this sort of the, the main component of a Blaze of the Dark game is is the score. And so, like I said, you're this criminal group, and so you're kind of going out. It's like, okay, we're going to go rob this building, or we're going to go assassinate this person for this job. And so, you know, works out kind of like, kind of like a heist movie or, or something like that. And one of the great mechanics of this is that whereas lots of games that do this sort of criminal heist thing, you spend so much time like planning out exactly how you're going to do it, and like you sp- you spend way more time planning the heist than you actually do playing the game. Blade just gets you right into it. Like. There's one missing element. Like you pick what you're going to do, and there's one missing element. Like, how are we going to approach this? Are we going to approach this stealthily? Did we find out that there's like this tunnel? So you pick your approach, and then you do what's called an engagement roll. Blades has that same three-tiered results that most PBTA games have. So depending on how your engagement roll goes, the game master just kind of drops you in to the situation, like halfway into the heist, get in, and all of a sudden you run into the guards, and then that's where things start. And then you have this flexibility with using using flashbacks and things like that, like in, uh, you know, like think like Ocean's Eleven, where like you know, something terrible happens, and then you have that flashback to like, oh, we prepared for this right. because because of course we did because we're professional thieves. Like, of course we would have thought of that and pre- made preparations for that. Yeah, I loved um, reading the book for Blades in the Dark and getting to the engagement role and the flashback mechanic because there's just a there's just a brilliance to that design. And honestly, port it over to a lot of games and sort of solve moments of unfun play by having something that's equivalent to the engagement role in the flashback. Mm-hmm. So that instead of the piece, the players themselves like meticulously working out a bunch of contingency plans that don't end up being relevant, you can throw the PCs into it and then give the players some ability to at a cost mm-hmm. narrate how they prep for this contingency and it all like becomes much smoother if you follow that sort of structure so I, I think there's something very smart about that design yeah and there's you know there are other ways that work too like the the way the inventory system works where whereas lots of games are like okay hey, well like i gotta make sure i have my rope and my food and all this sort of stuff on my character sheet whenever you go into a score you could there's three different levels that you can mark on your character sheet whether you have like a light load a medium load or a heavy load and that gives you a certain number of items but you don't actually check off your character sheet what items you have that you pull them out as necessary so when you say you have a medium load that means you could you get four items that you have with you and so when you come to a situation you're like oh well i need rope so i'm gonna mark rope and that's one of the the loads, things like that. It just it kind of further gives you that sense of like you're a professional at this. You know what you're doing. You're going to be prepared. And of course, the way that the game describes 
how fictional positioning works, where it doesn't have moves in the traditional PBTA sense. You have, you know, this is your result in a 10 plus, this is your result in a 7 to 9, that everything is sort of this negotiation between the players and the GM where you're determining your position, which is either you're in a controlled position, you're in a risky position, you're in a desperate position, and then your effect where, you know, if you succeed, how successful are you going to be? So your position is basically, if things go bad, how bad do they go? Hmm. And effect is, if if they go well, how well do they go? Which is, a, it, it's great for freeform, and I use this a lot. I'm a notoriously lazy GM for Dungeons & Dragons, and I use this sort of position and effect thing all the time. If I don't really want to work out a mechanic for how something is going to work, I'll, I'll sort of, you know, go through this position effect heuristic from blades of the dark for how I, how I run things. That's so cool. What a, what a fun thing to pull from that system and apply to jamming more broadly. Yeah. And then the other thing that I is not specific to, it didn't originate in blades in the dark, but Don Harper really expanded it. The, the use of clocks in blades in the dark. That's another thing that I, I use clocks in absolutely every RPG uh, I run now. And, and blades in the dark really takes this, it was a really sort of basic mechanic in apocalypse world and uses clocks for everything in blades in the dark. And it's, Next to you know taking fronts from Dungeon World, clocks from Blades of the Dark is is the the other mechanic that I use for absolutely everything in any RPG I run. Yeah, so if I remember correctly, um, clocks and Blades in the Dark can both be things like the heat that's on your that's on your crew or on a, a particular um, a particular job where you know mm-hmm. you might kind of the GM as a consequence might be marking a clock saying you're this much closer to having raised the alarm and, you know, have all the guards coming in Um, or, or even like clock just like being the way blades represents a a particular foes, you know, preparedness or, or vitality or whatever, where, um, you know, instead of having a bunch of stats for a foe, the foe becomes a, a clock or two that the players have to try to tick down by getting in hits or tricks Mm -hmm. against them. And what I love about that is it allows players to get creative and how you sort of overcome these clocks. Whereas, you know, in, in Dungeons and Dragons like that, like you're basically just you keep hitting it over and over again and watching the HP numbers go down. Whereas in Blades of the Dark, you're overcoming this clock where you're you're facing this, you know, this master fencer who they're just they're just so good that you have to kind of wear down their defense before you can do that. And of course you can one of the ways you can wear down their defense or whatever is by fighting them directly, but you can also get creative and, you know, throw something in their way or you know all, all sorts of things that you can have other players get assist you where you know someone someone distracts them and they they roll well in their discussions you can use that as an excuse to tick the clock on on this person's paired and defended they are uh to be able to to overcome them you can use them you can link them you know for if you're racing or chasing someone down everyone gets a clock and how well you see whoever fills their clock first is the one who wins this contest or um We'll talk about the structure you have the score but then you also have this down you have downtime which is the mechanical part of the game and one of the things you can do is work on a long-term project and so maybe you're trying to invent something and so you have to you know during your downtime you can spend some actions and you know fill up the clock okay, i'm just going to design the schematic and i fill it up and then, okay i'm gonna you know find all the parts i need and i'm actually gonna put it together and then once those clocks are full you know then you have this new this new item that you spent all this time uh working on there's there's all sorts of things you can use it for very fun. So I, I love it. Absolutely recommend it. It is, in a lot of ways, the new generation of PBTA. It's creating its own movement in a lot of ways that the Apocalypse World did. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a fair characterization based on the reception of the game in the gaming world. So let's right. go ahead and uh, move on to your number one. It's my number one, and listeners may have guessed it based on my 
discussion at the very top of this episode, but my mm-hmm. number one Powered by the Apocalypse game is Masks, A New Generation by Brendan Conway, published by Magpie Games. Masks is a game in which you play young superheroes who are growing up in a city several generations into its superheroic age. Your young, your young adults trying to figure out who they are and what kind of heroes they want to be. The rest of the world is telling you what to do, but you'll find your own path amidst the noise. So for someone who loves television shows like Teen Titans and Young Justice, Masks is absolutely my jam. Superheroes are a huge genre, and I think Masks does a great job focusing in on the very specific slice of teenage superheroes on kind of teams, right, that support each other, but also may have some friction and rivalry, uh, and who exist in a world with adult heroes who will kind of who will tell them who they are and how the world works. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the highlight mechanics for masks is a great way to represent social conflict. All adults in the world start out with influence over the PCs, influence being a mechanical thing that can be toggled on or off in masks, right? And when someone has influence over you, they can use it to tell you who you are or how the world works. And that has teeth because your stats in the game are a set of labels that define your self-image. Do you see yourself as, or how much do you see yourself as danger, freak, savior, superior, mundane? And when adults tell you who you are, that can change your labels, which affects how well you can do the moves of the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you have to decide every time you know the GM has an adult character tells you you're one thing or another or tell you the world works this way kid you got to be hard and tough you decide are you going to take that and let your labels shift and or are you going to try to defy it and resist you know having your self image molded by this grown up who's you know saying mm-hmm. how you should be a hero or how you should you know leave heroing to the grown ups right and this creates delicious moments of decision for the player characters and it just um means that there's never a kind of dull moment in the game really right because if you're not in the middle of pitched conflict against a supervillain, someone's reviewing your performance and telling you who who you should try to be right mm-hmm. such that when i started running this campaign of masks that was my my first big role-playing game campaign and lasted for for over a year you know wrapped up its with its epic conclusion recently but in the second episode the players both fought a supervillain and went to dinner at the house of one of the pcs and the dinner table conversation where that pc's parents were you know throwing around label shifts was like Mm -hmm. by far the kind of like more challenging encounter of the session yeah Uh, i I love that it's that's so great and for a very long time it's the superhero genre you know superhero superpowers have been you know a metaphor for all sorts of things you're dealing with identity and and change and things your place in the world and so tying that the the metaphor of of the superpowers into the very literal teenage phase of life and struggling with your identity and who you are and who you want to be just it it meshes so perfectly that you know they're absolutely a match made in heaven the the teenage drama and figuring out who you are and and the superpowers yeah and i think another canny piece of design in the game is uh, the way conditions work because that allows vastly differently powered characters to have a similar impact in the narrative because mm-hmm. in a fight on masks you aren't tracking physical damage you sort of you can add that for color right you know so you're like super strong person with metal skin kind of like taking a bunch of hits and be really dented up by the time the fight's over but they're fighting alongside a character who has no powers and just a bow right, right. You know, the, yes. the hawkeye type the hawkeye problem 
and and the the Hawkeye type character can contribute just as much to the fight because really what determines your you know ability to keep fighting in the game is uh, conditions and there those are you know emotional states that you accrue you, when you get angry when you get afraid when you get insecure. What and, if you're always angry? <laughs> uh, there are some playbooks that. Uh, you know, basically give you easy ways to give yourself conditions and then maybe a, um, you know, an advantage sometimes to having that condition. Uh, the bull is sort of the like, you know, tough fighter with a heart of gold archetype in masks. Uh, mm-hmm. And the bull has a move that's about like, you know, when you when you do such and such while angry, you get a bonus. Uh, yeah, but usually when you take these conditions in order to clear them, you have to either A, have a teammate comfort or support you, which makes for these kind of nice interpersonal scenes, right? Showing... The ways that these these teens support each other and these young superheroes kind of uh, back each other up when the chips are down. Or B, you can clear the condition by taking a relevant action. Usually, those are things that add further plot complications. So, for example, if you break something important, then you clear angry, but you've broken something important. Or if you take foolhardy action without consulting your team, that's a way to clear insecure. Uh, and it's also, of course, a great little you know. Cute role-playing cue that gives you as a player a way to you know lean into some of the uh, teenage drama of your character uh, in a way that like mechanically benefits you but of course narratively will probably lead to more scrapes for these mask mm-hmm. species yeah and i love i love that the in general um sort of in the history of, of superhero role-playing games the two major problems have been one that we kind of covered the problem of scales of hero, you know, the street level versus the cosmic level hero seems like mass handles that pretty well. And then the other issue people have in, in sort of picking their superhero game is of course how the powers work. And, you know, you have the, the different, you know, the different philosophies people approach that with, you know, where you have like, you know, the mutants and masterminds kind of approach where, you know, you have points and you spend all these points on describing exactly how your power works. And it's super fiddly and mechanical. Can you explain a little bit how, how the powers work in masks? Cause it's definitely not, not like that. Yeah, no, to, to me, masks, uh, power system matches more the way I see comic books working where it's just that your character archetype will have some power choices, right? Each playbook will have some abilities you can pick between. Usually they're a touch open-ended, so you can find exactly what they are. So like the bull, to return to that example, is kind of built in the abilities of you're strong and tough and uniquely good at fighting. And you can decide how that manifests in the fiction exactly. So the bull in the campaign that I ran, uh, played by my lovely wife, Leah Sargent, was a character called Sonia, uh, who could set her hands and feet on fire. And she kind of, as dictated by some of the bull's backstory questions, she was you know, given these powers by a shadowy organization that she escaped from. Uh, and that kind of led into a whole plot line involving the Forge, right, who'd been giving these fire powers out. But the exact definition of the powers shifted over the course of the series in response to the narrative, where, you know, the, the character, you know, would like, try something big with her powers and roll a successful unleash and kind of establish a new benchmark for what she could do mm-hmm. or like would we'd reveal some hidden programming that the organization had put in her when they gave her these powers and that would unlock something new and and a little like disturbing right about the way her powers worked so right. primarily story driven you kind of you kind of mechanically engage with the powers when you when you roll the unleash move but you can you can you can just like describe using your powers with any of the other moves, you know, if you're using your powers in a way that mm-hmm. you're you're used to doing, right? Kind of right. it's less about like here's the exact parameter of your powers and more like, yeah, you're 
you're a kid with powers that you may not fully understand yet. And so the game kind of has built into it the possibility of expanding your powers just by trying new things with them. And, and you know, each of the playbooks engages a little bit differently with this. There's a playbook of the legacy where you're like the latest in a long line of heroes and mm-hmm. they all share abilities. But at the start, you kind of pick a a set a line of abilities right and you can kind of tell that these are evoking diff- different um, famous superheroes so like you could pick the line of abilities that's super speed super strength flight super senses laser vision and mm-hmm. then, you know, that sounds a little like superman doesn't it the n- fun thing with the legacy is at the start of play you pick three of those abilities you have and two you haven't unlocked yet so kind of that means that as part of your character's arc, you know, at some point you'll take the advancement to get those additional abilities right. and you've kind of picked which ones you've which ones you've got under your belt at the start and which ones you're kind of your family has, but you haven't managed to pull off yet. And so I math is one I actually I haven't been able to run. It's, it's been on my list for a long time with something to run, but I've, I've read through the book. One thing that the labels absolutely, I, I think, are one of the best pieces of mechanical design in there they're they're so fantastic and one thing i was really interested in is i believe there's some mechanic maybe a later stage in the game the idea of locking these labels absolutely uh, can, you, can you talk about that a little bit yeah yeah so a bunch of the a bunch of the game involves people telling you who you are and trying to shift your labels and as your character gets closer to really kind of graduating out of out of being um, a PC, out of being a teenager who's still figuring out their identity and kind of potentially becoming a paragon of the city or retiring from the superhero life. Right. Those are kind of two advanced two options you could choose when you take a take a last advancement and retire your player character. As you get closer to that, you'll have opportunities to to lock one of your labels and basically no one can mess with it anymore. You've kind of decided something about your self-image and it's no longer subject to debate or to other people's influence. And that kind of the the main way that happens is when you take the advancement of your moment of truth and deploy it, you get this awesome moment that's tailored to your playbook where narrative control is turned over to you, the player, and you can describe your character doing something really awesome. But for the legacy, the moment of truth involves kind of fully coming into your own as a as a member of your legacy and kind of proving why the mantle should belong to you. For the bull, the moment of truth involves a kind of amazing display of powers that like levels whatever's in front of you, but also definitely lets that evil organization that created you know where you are, right? Mm-hmm. So the moment of truth is like a big narrative turning point for your character. And as you come down off of it, you know, as like you kind of seed seed the narrative back to the the gm you also get to define how that moment of truth has locked in something about how your character views themselves and kind of mark on your character sheet that you know my savior is plus three it's who i am no one's gonna tell me tell me differently right yeah the cool mechanic but you know the biggest thing is that it really drives home the themes of the game uh and and makes that that story moment really really shine yeah i mean i think that's something that's really come through in all these games that were stood out from the pack enough to be on our top five list of PBTA mm-hmm. games that the designers of these games did a great job finding ways to make the mechanics really serve the themes of their story so that kind of what the story's about comes through loud and clear through what is given that mechanical weight. I, I think the the strongest selling point of, of the PBTA genre as a whole is that it it really helps you as a GM and as the players create those moments and, and really drive that story and, and reinforce 
everything about the genre of the game that you're playing and the story you're trying to tell it makes it really easy to, to to lean into that and have those the experiences that you when you look at the you know look at the tin look at the cover of the book and and see what sort of things it's trying to evoke it it really helps you to create those create those moments absolutely awesome well that was our list of our top five PBT games. Lexi, thank you for coming. Where can, uh, if people want to follow you, hear more about what you're up to, follow your your posts about your campaigns that are going on. I, I really enjoyed uh, the weekly updates from your, your mass campaign on Twitter. Uh, so where can people find you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Alexi Sargent. That's A-L-E-X-I-S-A-R-G-E-A-N-T. You can check out all my articles and podcasts if you go to alexisargent.com. Uh, again, S-A-R-G-E-A-N-T. And let me shamelessly plug that I'm developing a PBTA game of my own. It's called Autumn Triduum, a game of darkness, sisterhood, and faith. Or as I more flippantly summarize it sometimes, nuns versus evil. So this is a game where you play as religious sisters confronting the forces of spiritual darkness from All Hallows' Eve to All Souls' Day. It's designed to tell exciting and moving stories about spiritual warfare and religious vocations. Get on the mailing list for Autumn Triduum to learn more about the game at bit.ly slash list. That's a capital autumn, capital triduum, capital list, bit.ly slash list. Fantastic. That sounds super cool. I'm definitely going to have to get, get on that list. I'm not sure how I uh, am not already, but I will I will remedy that soon after we finish recording here. Well, thanks so much. Well, it was an absolute pleasure talking to you. It's very rare that I get the opportunity to have long conversations with people who think about RPGs as much as I do. <laughs> uh, so it's uh, it, it's been fantastic talking to you. It's been a great time for me as well. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Top Worst Whatever. You can follow us on Twitter at Top Worst Cast. Please make sure to rate and review us on whatever your podcast platform of choice is. Tune in next week for a new guest and a new top or worst of whatever it is they want to talk about. Bye.